morning, everyone. Happy New Year. Today's scripture reading is from Revelation chapter 3, verses 7 to 13. It's on page 1235. Page 1235. To the church in Philadelphia, to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write. These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars. I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep your, you from the hour of trial that is going to come on the whole world to rest the inhabitants of the earth. I'm coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. The one who is victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will they leave it. I will write on them the name of my God and the name of, my, of the city of God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And I will also write on them my new name. Whoever has ears, let them hear them, hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Thank you. Well, good morning and thank you, David, for reading. And I guess you're expecting me to wish you a happy and prosperous new year. But having read the New Year messages of our political leaders, I'm, sure, I'm not sure I can hold out any hope that 2023 will be a very happy year for anyone who places their trust in our leaders, our government and their policies. But we shall be praying for them on Thursday, so please do come. But for all who place their trust in Jesus Christ... I can hold out every hope, a certain hope, of a glorious ultimate future, even though there is no promise of an easy journey until we reach our destination when we will be with Jesus. Let me pray. Father God, we thank you for this opportunity to look at your word. And Father, I just pray that you will help me as I seek to uh, share what I believe you have shared with me, and please help those here that they might be attentive 
and receive what you want them to hear today, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, As I studied this letter to the church in Philadelphia, I reflected on something that has been missing from my life for more than 25 years, my annual appraisal. It was always a great opportunity to put my boss right about the amazing job I was doing and how really fortunate he was to have me in his team. I've only now realised how, how much I miss those appraisals. And so you ask, what do my appraisals of 25 years ago have to do with this letter David has just read? Well, at the heart of each of these seven letters is Jesus' appraisal of the church of their strengths and weaknesses. Uh, We're on to uh, the sixth letter today, and we shall finish uh, number seven this evening, Father, this evening, as uh, Shaq shares with us. Three of the churches receive mixed appraisals, much like mine were, if I'm honest. Jesus had nothing good to say uh, to two of the churches, and to, to the other two, he had nothing bad to say. And one of those is this letter to the church in Philadelphia. And so, unlike any of my appraisals, there are no criticisms, no warnings, no suggestions that you could do better. Philadelphia lay on the main route between Greece in the west and Asia in the east. It was a hub of Greco-Asiatic civilization and was significant in spreading the Greek language. Jewish families began to settle in that region uh, two to three hundred years before Christ. The city lay on a fault line and devastating earthquakes were common. In AD 17, it was one of several cities that were destroyed. Caesar Tiberius helped with its rebuilding by suspending payment of taxes for five years. And out of the the gratitude, uh, the city developed uh, close ties to Rome. Before we work our way through the letter, I hope you've got uh, Revelation 3 um, open, page 1235. Um, I'd just like to draw attention to one observation about the church in verse 8. I know that you have little strength. I've heard preachers suggest that the believers were tired and weary, they were worn out, uh, perhaps because of persecution. But I don't think that is what is being said. Rather, I'm sure that it denotes that it was a small church and they had little strength simply because they had few leaders and members and doubtless uh, limited funds. They were not feeble or weak. Uh, They were not just looking to survive. Quite the opposite. But if it were a 21st century church, it would stand in stark contrast to the mega-churches that are so often viewed as being the churches that are really successful in building God's kingdom. But this is a small church and is commended by the Lord. The pastor of the church in Philadelphia would not be a celebrity. He would certainly never be invited as the keynote speaker at any major gathering. I guess the church's website would no no doubt be quite basic if it was around today, or they might even be making do with a Facebook page. As we've seen with the previous letters, they all begin with the writer identifying himself with a description. 
in this letter. Uh, and he, uh, Jesus, makes four statements, as we see in verse 7. Firstly, he is holy. There is no one holy apart from God. And so the writer, in saying that he is holy, is affirming that he is God. Jesus is affirming his divinity. The disciples recognise this on one occasion, as we read in John chapter 6. Simon Peter said to Jesus, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. We also read in Mark 1, Mark chapter 1, of a man possessed with an impure spirit crying out, What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And secondly, Jesus says, He is true. In our NIV version, holy and true are merged as one statement, but they are really two separate statements intricately linked. The Greek word used means genuine, real, authentic, as opposed to false. So Jesus is both the holy God who cannot tolerate sin and the true God, the God of truth, who cannot tolerate any falsehood or error. And thirdly, Jesus identifies himself as the one who holds the key of David. We find the meaning of the key of David in Isaiah chapter 22. We read there of the king's steward, Shebna, being sacked, really, being replaced by Elikim, who would carry on his shoulder the key of the house of David. It was an enormous key. It wasn't on a key ring. It had to be carried on his shoulder. And that key would give him access to the royal palace and the authority to allow others access and equally to deny access. And Jesus, holding the key of David, denotes his authority to access all the treasures of heaven and to dispense all the blessings as he chooses. And fourthly, in this introduction of this description of the writer of Jesus, um, linked to that authority, is the one who opens what no one can shut, and shuts what no one can open. He holds the key to the kingdom. Uh, he holds the key. If we just turn back to chapter 1, verse 18. I hold the keys of death and Hades. That's Revelation chapter 1, verse 18. This accords with everything that Jesus himself said during his ministry. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And on another occasion, I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. I find it quite remarkable that Jesus, the Holy One, who cannot tolerate sin, and the True One, who cannot tolerate anything that is untrue or false, does not draw any atten attention to any failings in the church of Philadelphia. 
Obviously, the church was not perfect, but there was nothing of significance that Jesus needed to draw their attention to. He was full of grace and wonderfully tender in commending this faithful church. And so let us look at what uh, the church was commended for. In verse 8, for their deeds, I know your deeds. We simply have this statement, I know your deeds. I interpret this to mean that Jesus commends the way they are living, for they are living out what they believe. James's words uh, in the Apostle of James, James' words about faith without deeds would not apply to them. You may remember what James says in his letter. What good is it, brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. The faith of the believers in Philadelphia was far from dead. And secondly, in verse 9, um, verse 9, you have, sorry, verse 8 still, sorry, you have kept my word. They are commended for keeping uh, God's word. Specifically, they held to the gospel. And clearly, judging by all the warnings of the New Testament letters about false teachers, false teachers, it was no small matter then, just as it's no small matter today, to stay true to the gospel and teach the whole word of God. The church in Philadelphia did that. And then also, next we get in verse 8 still, they are commended because they have not denied uh, my name. The fact that this has been mentioned suggests that it was costly to do so, that they were being persecuted and were put under pressure to deny Jesus as their Lord. Unquestionably, the consequences of affirming that they were followers of Jesus were much greater for them than they were for Peter when he denied Jesus, when he was confronted by the servant girl, and yet Peter's denial illustrates how easily we can be caught off guard by the unexpected question. We can be prepared and resilient when we expect to be tested, but then fail when the unexpected challenge comes. Jesus said on one occasion, whoever acknowledges me before others I will also acknowledge before my Father in heaven. But whoever disowns me before others, I will disown before my Father in heaven. And then another thing for which they are commended is in verse 10. Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, the church was commended for enduring patiently under the pressures it faced. Here is another warning that Jesus gave when speaking of the end times, which we are now in, of course. He said, 
Then you'll be handed over to be persecuted and put to death. And you'll be hated by all nations because of me. At that time, many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other. And many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. But the one who stands firm to the end will be, will be saved. Let's just turn back to uh, Revelation chapter 1 again, just the previous page. This time, verse 9. This is John, uh, the Apostle John. I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus. John was suffering persecution and was patiently enduring. The church in Philadelphia was commended for enduring patiently. So let us look at the rewards that the church is promised for being so faithful. In verse 8, I have placed before you an open door. And I believe that the open door is an open door of opportunity to serve the Lord and especially to proclaim the gospel. We as a church need to be thankful for the open door to serve God here in Banstead, to proclaim his kindness to us and the gift of salvation through his son, the Lord Jesus. How thankful we should be as we look back, uh, as we will do on Thursday over this last year, and particularly over this last month, and reflect upon the opportunities that in his mercy he has made available to us. And the second uh, reward is the way he, um, in verse 9, he humbles uh, their opponents. I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they're not, but are lies, I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Which is a remarkable thing. Doubtless the believers in Philadelphia encountered opposition from all sorts of diverse groups, mostly Gentiles. But the one mentioned, and possibly, I guess, the most significant, was the Jewish community. Their synagogue is referred to as the synagogue of Satan. How damning is that? And why? Because they are liars, claiming to be Jews, but are not. Legally and ethnically, they are Jews, of course, but not spiritually. This reflects what Paul said uh, in his letter to the Romans. A person is not a Jew who is one only outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the spirit, not by the written code. Such a person's praise is not from other people, but from God. Jesus' promise is, is quite remarkable, isn't it? That these Jews, who will no doubt have scoffed and mocked the believers for thinking they were true children of God, would be so humbled by God as to fall at the feet of those whom they'd mocked and be forced to acknowledge the truth 
that God did truly love the believers who were truly God's children. And the next reward um, is their safety and security. In verse 10, since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come on the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. Some commentators and teachers interpret this trial as the great tribulation, partly because of the reference to the whole world and the promise is therefore interpreted that the believers will not have to go through it. For some, therefore, it supports their case for a rapture before the tribulation. A very complex subject, of course, but I find it difficult to accept the view that it could be referring to that tribulation, especially as scholars admit that the term the whole world is open to interpretation. It could well mean, and may well have meant, that it was just the whole of the Roman Empire or the whole of the region around Philadelphia. It seems strange to me that Jesus would refer in just one letter to a situation that would affect all the churches. Smyrna, the other church which received unqualified praise, was also warned of persecution, which they would actually suffer. Look at chapter 2, verse 10, uh, the letter to, to Smyrna. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for ten days. Be faithful even to the point of death. In their case, they were going to have to endure the persecution. So I'm inclined to the view that the trial referenced in Philadelphia's letter is also something that was going to be particular to them. And was Jesus telling the church that they would not have to go through the trial or that he would protect them through it? Again, views are divided. I'm reminded of Jesus' prayer for his disciples in John 17. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. I like how one commentator, Grant Osborne, summarises this issue of suffering from persecution. In the book of Revelation, he writes, the judgments of the seals, the trumpets, the bowls, fall on the earth dwellers and not on the believers. This does not mean Christians are exempt from suffering. Persecution and martyrdom are major components of Revelation's teaching. The saints, the believers, are protected spiritually rather than physically, and their suffering will be their victory. What they are exempt from are God's judgments. The believers will be protected from the wrath of God against unbelievers, but not from the wrath of Satan and his minions directed at them. And we can take great comfort 
from what we learned earlier, that God is sovereign and nothing will happen without his knowledge or without him allowing it for his glorious purposes. And then in verse 12, Jesus reinforces this promise of security. The one who is victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will they leave it. I will write on them the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And I will also write on them my new name. The final result of the Lord's loving care is the promise that those who are victorious will be made a pillar in the temple of my God. It is a promise to all true believers who endure. It denotes the eternal security of heaven. It says, never again will they leave it. This would have been a particularly significant promise to these believers in Philadelphia, uh, with the area so exposed to devastating earthquakes, which meant that they would never have felt totally secure. Pillars in many temples were dedicated to notable people. But admittedly, the imagery of believers being pillars in a metaphorical temple is difficult to grasp. We, we read, I will write on them the name of my God, and that denotes that we are believers, our God's possession. Also written on them is the name of the city of God, and that denotes that we are citizens of that city with the right to all the privileges of citizenship. And then his name, the name of the Lord Jesus, his new name, will be written on them. We're, told what, we're not told what that new name is, but we know that it will be the name above all names. The Lord's tender promise to these believers in Philadelphia who are being persecuted and to all true believers since then is that their security is assured. For the benefit of any who might be struggling to absorb this concept of being a pillar and may not like the thought of being one, allow me to share one teacher's comment which I found immensely helpful. Who wants to be a pillar in a temple we can never leave? The point is not that we become immovable support posts in a building, but that we enter the very presence of the Lord and never again leave him. He is the temple of which we are pillars. The imagery is tremendously rich, echoing Jesus' promise, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And the Apostle Paul's great hope, when he said, so we shall always be with the Lord, our place will forever be in the very presence of God and of Jesus. Well, thank you for patiently enduring this morning, especially those who stayed up a little later than usual last night or this morning. The finishing post is in sight, so hold on. And if you are a believer, that is the instruction in verse 11.
I'm coming soon. And that denotes, not necessarily in terms of time, but I'm coming, uh, I will come quickly, unexpectedly. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. The warning is that if you do not hold on, if you do not remain faithful, you are at risk of losing your crown. Not losing your salvation, but losing your full reward in heaven. There are a few verses in the Bible which warn us of this. Uh, for example, in 2 John 1.8, Watch out that you do not lose what we have worked for, but that you, but that you may be rewarded fully. So to summarise, let us let each of us follow the example of the Church of Philadelphia. Let us be diligent in living out our faith, that our love for Jesus will be seen in our deeds and actions. Let us be diligent in keeping and teaching God's word and in proclaiming the true gospel. Let us be courageous in never being ashamed of being known as a disciple of Jesus, that we would never deny his name. And let us endure patiently. I know that for several in our church, the need for patient endurance is a current reality, and in some cases it has been for many months. Not because of persecution, but because of ill health or the loss of a loved one or on account of some other burden or trial. If you're in that situation, continue to endure patiently. Look into the Lord for his help in sustaining you and enabling you to persevere. And may we be a church that cares and supports those going through circumstances that demand patient endurance. And finally, in the good times and the tough times, let us hold on to what we have so that we will not lose what we have worked for, but may be rewarded fully when Jesus returns. Let us, and I'm using words from Jude 21 and 25, keep ourselves in God's love as we wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to bring us to eternal life. For we know that he is able to keep us from stumbling and to present us before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. And a second, finally, before I pray. I mentioned that Jesus is the key holder to heaven and to hell. Many people, in fact most people, do not believe that. They believe that they hold the key to their own destiny their eternal future. Live a good life and you get to heaven. Live a bad life, however you might like to define that, and you'll probably find yourself in the other place, hell. That is not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that Jesus will only unlock the gate to heaven for those who have had their sins forgiven by trusting him who died for our sins. If there's someone here this morning who has never invited Jesus into their life as their saviour, or if there's someone here who has no assurance that they will be a pillar in the heavenly temple, 
please do speak to one of the leaders here. We would love to explain how you can be certain that you will be welcomed into heaven to be with Jesus forever. And we must be ready for his return, for he may come at any time. Let me pray. Almighty God, we ask that you will forgive us as a church for times when we have failed you. We long that we might be a faithful church like the church in Philadelphia, that you will commend us for our deeds, for keeping and faithfully proclaiming your word and your name, and for patiently enduring through all the struggles that we might encounter. Please hold each one of us fast and keep us holding on to what we have that we might not lose our reward. And please grant us an open door for the proclamation of the gospel in our community. We ask these things in the name of Jesus, the Holy One, the True One. Amen.